Previously on the Vibeball Podcast. Lewis Hamilton in F1. Basketball. Small forward. LeBron James. Alexander Carlin. He was a Greco-Roman wrestler. Squash legend Heather McKay. Barry Lamar Bonds from Major League Baseball. And the debate continues. Well, I actually would like to kind of pose a, pose a bit of a question here or or even bring something up. I, I wanted to ask uh, both Joel and Zach, how many full matches of Roman or Greco-Roman wrestling and how many full matches of squash have you watched in your life? I, I have not watched a single entire match of squash, but I have watched Greco-Roman wrestling when it's at the Olympics. I also have watched Greco-Roman wrestling when it's at the Olympics. Shockingly, I haven't been taking a tally over mm-hmm. the course of my life of how many games I've watched. Um, also, I'm not sure how, how relevant that is, but... Uh, let me let me continue there, yeah. because what I would say then is, let's talk about the popularity of the sports in question. Baseball is undeniably America's pastime. You know, you've got football, you've got bumper brains, you've got these guys going out there with CTE. Baseball is the path of the American dream. Troy, you're so about you've... to start something on a whole new level. No, hold on. <laughs> I'm telling you, just... just... Just be patient with me. Stick with me. All right? So if you're a young kid in the United States of America, one of the most populous countries in the world, if you're if you're a young kid and you, let's say you're 12 years old, you know, you're pretty tall for your age. You're, let's say you're 6'3", and you're, and you're 180 pounds. You're a big kid for, for grade 6 or grade 7. You know, I've got a couple choices here. i got to make some choices. Am I, am I going to go... Play Greco-Roman wrestling, or am I going to go be an offensive lineman for my local Pop Warner team? The best athletes are not playing in the sports you're mentioning. The best athletes are going to make lucrative money with lucrative sports. I agree. Barry Bonds Bonds was saying to the whole world, as long as you cheat, you are allowed to make it in America's pastime. Mm -hmm. But just to get Barry Bonds... Sorry, Joel. Oh, what were you say? That, that's a good point, Zach. And I want I want to point something out. Jory, you've reframed the question in a way I don't think is entirely fair. The question at hand is not who is the best athlete of all time. If that was the question, I would not have brought up Alexander Kallerlin. I would have brought up someone like Jim Thorpe, who has a much better case as best athlete of all time. The question was most dominant athlete of all time. And dominant doesn't have to be assessed based on your popularity. It doesn't have to be assessed based on I'm not talking about popularity, though. I'm, what I'm getting at is the level of competition. You see, Barry Bonds played against legends like Greg Maddox, legends like Randy Johnson. Randy Johnson got smoked by none other than Barry Bonds. Randy Johnson, for those that aren't aware, is widely considered the best left-handed pitcher of basically the back half of the 20th century. Now, if I could just pull up the stat right here. In 62 plate appearances against Randy Johnson, Barry hit 306, so that's a 306 batting average. He got on base 45% of the time at a slugging percentage of 551. Over the course of Randy Johnson's career against left-handed batters, which Barry Bonds was, their average was under 200, and the on-base percentage was 278. Barry okay. Bonds had nearly twice as good, nearly twice as much as the average left-handed batter. Now, hold on. What I'm getting at 
is that these guys were both remarkable athletes. We're talking. Let's 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 uh, let's change tune here. What uh, our uh, our famous squash athlete? Uh, got, I think uh, squash is a far more athletic sport than baseball. I agree. I agree with you, Zach. Heather McKay was playing against plumbers and and uh, and uh, delivery and milkmen and various types of people that could not dedicate their life to the training, to the athleticism needed. They couldn't make a living in these niche sports. You know, when's the last time on Fox Sports in the middle of October in in the in prime time a Greco-Roman wrestling match? You know? Enjoy. We're talking Enjoy. about the sport. We're talking about the biggest Athlete. When's the last time the we're World not World Cup was on Fox Sports? On. No, 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 Jory, Jory. We're not talking about the best or the the biggest athletes. We're talking about the most dominant. And dominant can only be assessed within one's field. You cannot tell me. No, no. Let me finish. Dominant is not about how good you are. It's not about how big you are. It's not about how many people are watching you. It's not even about. It's not even about how good your competition is. Dominant is how well you did in your sport at a given time. Is that what we're talking about? I thought we were Dominance talking about is excellence relative I would, to competition. I would also uh, we can we can we can define it in different ways, but I would also point out, Jory, that your stats your stats about Barry Bonds versus Randy Johnson, who is a great pitcher, are worse than his stats for his career. So so you're trying to say that he dominated him. He hit 302, which is good, but not completely elite. I would. I would also say that your arguments about people working working jobs. I'm gonna make a point for you here, Zach. Heather McKay worked a job while she was dominating squash. She worked a job the whole time. She never quit her job because she never tried to rely on squash for a career. She treated it as a hobby, and she was still that good. You cannot tell me that Barry Bonds would have nearly the career stats he did if he was trying to work a day job at the same time. It's just not possible. It's just not possible. But that's not what I'm getting at. You're heading in the wrong direction. Because the fact that her opponents didn't have the opportunity to train, to try to un- unlock techniques that would elevate them to the level of Heather McKay, the, the fact that they didn't have that opportunity tells me that it was not a level playing field. You know, some of these players might have not had the opportunity. Some of these players might have had to had to pay for their children to to go to the dentist and so forth you know Barry Bonds didn't have to worry about his children I'm pretty sure he divorced and I'm pretty sure he pays like child so um this this is allegedly and also probably <laughs> I don't know jury concerns just uh, just a just a quick to put can I say one last thing on this uh, yeah yeah go ahead it'll be quick and and jury I know you're gonna want to respond to this but you mentioned a really specific turn of phrase in which you just said, you think that Heather McKay did not play on a level playing field when she was dominating squash. And that is the, f- the most hilarious statement I've ever heard from someone defending Barry Bonds, a known steroid user who cheated his way into the game and didn't start hitting home runs and still he turned a juice. He was a great player before that. He would be a Hall of Famer if he had never done it. I fully agree. But you cannot criticize Heather McKay for not playing on a level playing field when Barry Bonds is the most notorious cheater in baseball. To defend Barry Bonds, I'll say he's never been proven cheating, but also to not defend Jory, I think it's a consensus that he definitely did take steroids. <laughs> if you look at pictures from him in his days in Pittsburgh and pictures at him at his days in San Francisco at 35 years old, 
there's no direct proof. We haven't we we don't have pictures of him injecting steroids into himself, but we have the next best thing. It's very obvious. It's well established. Yeah, with all this talk about popularity and the reputation in uh, in your sport, I know, I, like I know, it doesn't exactly relate to what what you think it, uh, what you why you think Heather dominated her sport uh, or squash. But do you think there was uh, Zach? Was there any sort of reputation, any sort of public attention that might support Heather's claim to the throne? Um. I mean, in Australia, she's she's lorded over, which is where she's from. Um, okay. But squash, I, I don't think that squash has ever had the same worldwide appeal. Um, it really, when you're talking about Australian athletes, you have you have Don Bradman and you have Heather Mackay, and it's not really everybody else is a ridiculously distant third. So. Heather Mackay's dominance is just is just unsurpassed, really, um, about squash uh, in squash rather. Sorry, and really, if if unlike badminton, squash would be an Olympic sport more frequently, or in fact at all, you would have seen her showcase her squash prowess on an international stage that would actually have thrust squash into a greater popularity as opposed to staying at the time in which Heather McKay played in the relatively uh, condensed British Commonwealth uh, set of countries. That's interesting that that um, it was almost a shame that Heather didn't get to show her dominance on the international stage. Um, spe- speaking of that, we had an interesting conversation about the scoring system between between squash and uh, and Greco-Roman wrestling, and it, it, they seem to be almost similar, at least in in uh, like numerically. Squash games go up to nine points, and then wrestling matches go from zero to ten points. So, do you think it's it makes sense to compare those two scores? Because it seems, as Joel pointed out before, that that Heather, the games that she did lose, she lost in a more dominant fashion than uh, Curl or Alexander did. So, well, I, I think it's I think. Sorry, Joel, go ahead. I don't think they're comparable, and the reason for that is the way that at least current scoring systems in squash work is that you have to reach a set number of points to win. Like, that's how you win in squash. Mm-hmm. In in high-ho 9, you have to reach 9 points or more if you're tied. In pars 11, you have to reach 11 points. We, we can get into talking about the new RAM method that some people are proposing where it's a timed game. I think that's against the spirit of squash. But currently, as it stands and as Heather McKay played it, you always had to score 9 points. Where in Greco-Roman wrestling, you can win none, win one nothing, and that's a valid win. So I don't think the scoring systems are directly comparable. I think that Joel and I are both squash traditionalists on this, trying to preserve the scoring system of, of high-ho 9 or at least pars 11. But I, I agree it's also not entirely... Uh, valid to compare them because squash is playing on a sets paradigm so you're winning best three out of five sets i should also note that the majority of heather mckay's wins were in straight sets so it's a little bit it's a little bit different in the sense that alexander carlin uh, i'm i'm unsure whether greco-roman wrestling has a one round timed format or whether it's three rounds of smaller time durations but um, I, I'd like to hear Joel's opinion on that and how time kind of plays with the idea 
of greatness, but I think that Heather McKay is really up there in you get in there, you play, you lose in straight sets, and you leave. That's the really the only way to play against Heather McKay in a game of squash, and I think that that just shows how dominant she is. When you leave the sport, not because you're bad, but because there's no one good enough to play you, you know you know you're dominant. When when you can't train with any women in the entire world, so you train with the top men's players in the world, that's that's when you know that you you've transcended your playing field in a particular game. When when you leave the sport for multiple years, come back and still win, that's that's dominance. Yeah, so I think that's I think that's fair to to clarify the scoring period or the the time for Greco-Roman wrestling is two three minute rounds. If you look at Heather McKay's Heather McKay's career, we were we were talking about how squash is not in the Olympics earlier, and that's true, and that's a shame, and I think squash should be in the Olympics, and that's that's its own issue. But if for a lot of Heather McKay's career, there was not even an official world squash championship. It was by default. It was the British Open for a while. It was, it was the British Open for a while, and that's that's fair. But it's not a real World Open, and the World Open eventually came along, and I believe 1979 was the first official World Open. The official one. There was an unofficial one before that. But that's nearing the end of her career. Not not quite towards the end, but when you compare that to someone like Carlin, who competed on the world stage, the actual world stage, and the Olympic stage, these are some of the, the greatest athletes in the world, and that's that's just a fact. I think it's I think it's hard to compare them and say that we know 100% for sure that Heather McKay was going up against the very best of the very best, when that's a guarantee in Carlin's case. And I'm not trying to say that she wasn't going up against the very best. I'm just saying there's less of a guarantee there because there was no real official official uh, world championship for much of her career. Well, another thing that I wanted to point out here is that you don't need to have a world championship in order for a designated event to be deemed... Uh, my, I guess my point is bringing it back to baseball, which we've talked about. Uh, despite there even uh, being a world baseball classic, which has existed for the last 15 years or so, uh, the World Series, which is actually named after the New York World newspaper as an original sponsor, not because it's the international championship, is still seen as the penultimate championship event in baseball. Similarly, despite the existence of the CFL's Grey Cup, which has had a longer history than the Super Bowl and the Lombardi Trophy, the Lombardi Trophy is still seen in the NFL as the ultimate championship of the sport. Uh, so I don't think that it's it's fair really to say that because there wasn't something designated the world championship, that it wasn't a de facto world championship, uh, the British Open that is in the case of squash, because in some sports, like the two that I just named, the world championship is seen as even lesser than any equivalent world championship. To take tennis for another example, the four majors, the Australian Open, US Open, French Open, and Wimbledon are all generally seen as uh, more impressive or more storied than than the Olympic gold medal, uh, despite the fact that even though the Olympic gold medal has only existed for a short amount of time in tennis, it still does not carry the same prestige and weight in terms of competition. Um, but I know that they're, they're also, when we're talking about these different things, we're talking about different eras and different types of scoring mechanisms, especially when it comes to 
to, to football, the CFL and the NFL for one. So scoring mechanism differences can make a difference. And uh, so I know that uh, we, we kind of glossed over the scoring mechanism changes in squash, but I, I just wanted, uh, I know that Joel wanted to say something about those. You're, you're, I sure did. I sure did, Zach. Um, so what you, when you were talking about Heather McKay's dominance, you were, you were talking about how when you played Heather McKay, you had to go out there and play one way and she probably beat you in straight sets. And that's true. Also to go back about that point about the world championships, I'll listen to that. You made a really good argument there. I'm on board with you now. That wasn't a, quite a fair claim by me. I'll give you that one. We go back to talking about HiHo9, which again, for people who don't remember the weird acronyms for squash scoring systems, <laughs> means you can only score on points where you serve. So if your opponent serves, it doesn't count as a point for you. That's just you winning the serve, and then you get to you get to serve to try to win your actual point then. That sort of scoring system makes the it draws out the games a long time. It makes them a lot longer, it draws out matches, and it really benefits the person who's more athletic. And to Heather McKay's credit, I'll give her this, she was a phenomenal athlete. On top of being a squash legend, she was also a phenomenal field hockey player and a phenomenal racquetball player. And I, I'm not, that's just the, that's just the truth. She, she's incredible. But I would like to say that that sort of athleticism gives her a real, it's not unfair, but it gives her a real advantage in a hi-ho-9 format, which really benefits that stamina over just the pure skill that you might see in more of a pars-11 format, where a, a point is awarded on each on each rally. So I would like to maybe, maybe posit that Heather McKay was dominant in her era, for sure, but that's partially because she had such stamina and she was such an incredible athlete. Maybe not translates to pure squash skill in the way that you might see in a pars-11 player of the modern game. Just to add to the scoring system debate, sort of, as far as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, the hi-ho nine, the points only count if they're on your serve, and if if uh, the opponent is serving and you score a point, you don't get a point, you get the serve, right? So you get an That's correct. Right, yeah. so I, I was wondering, Allah, doesn't that mean that if, if you know, Heather McKay, the, on the scoreboard, her points might she, seem very dominant but it could be that it just went back and forth a lot and she might have scored on her uh sort of serve streaks but then a lot of the quote-unquote points that the opponent might have scored on her uh, on her while she was serving didn't count and so they wouldn't have shown on the scoreboard does does that mean that it maybe the scoreboard looks more dominant than what the match might have actually been like so that's a that's a fair question, Akash. Uh, so if anything, then Heather Mackay's wins would be less dominant because in this particular situation, because if you had people winning on non-serve points back and forth, then she would have lost a lot more points than uh, a lot more points than she uh, would have shown indicative in the box score, or at least in the scores that we have. But just looking at all of the British Opens that she won between 1962 and 1977, if the claim was that um, that uh, Miss Mackay was better and more because she was more fit then you would see that as matches get drawn out the number of points being scored by her opponent would dissipate because she would actually be scoring 
more points based on her stamina and her opponent not being able to to come back as easily but in fact you see the opposite trend so in her 16 british open championships in which she won all of them in straight sets over the course of 16 she in uh she gave up 26 first set points, 30 second set points, and 42 third set points, which actually suggests that Heather Mackay was least dominant at the end of the sport, suggesting that in a high ho nine format, it actually played to her disadvantage, and in a pars 11 format, she would in the most advantageous position because she gave up the fewest points in the event that because she was seated high as she started first in a high ho nine format and thus only gave up 26 points because she started with serve then in a high ho nine format her second set she would only have given up 30 points 30 points over the course of her 16 british opens which means then in the third set she should give up fewer points again because she would be equivalent to her first set number of points but actually she continued to increase throughout the game suggesting that in a pars 11 format she would be even more dominant i think you have made a fair point there zach but what you said is that she gets less dominant as the sets go on i think a high ho nine format you also have to look at within one set where she's scoring her points whether that's at the beginning of the end because there are breaks in between sets if i'm correct on that i i think that's true so having that stamina allows you to really push through through a set and then that sort of resets from set to set that's a lot of the word set but i think you know what i'm saying is that i don't think your point really shows that she is that dominant just because it's high ho nine because i think that stamina factor sort of resets during every set like, I think at the beginning of each set, your set, your stamina sort of resets, which would, that would still allow her to be dominant throughout each of the three sets. I, I see, yeah, so you're saying the stamina sort of counts more for uh, an individual set. The longer the set goes, the more the stamina would affect it, but uh, within the within the matchup, uh, for each different set, does the stamina doesn't really hold from, uh, like, through sets, right? I think what this would really come down to is us trying to determine how many points were actually played in a high ho nine format in comparison to a pars 11 format. And unfortunately we, we don't have that, or at least I don't have that information on hand, but that's something I would love to, to look into. Uh, Just, just getting back to a, just a different Avenue for a moment. I know that Nevo has kind of, I like, I like the idea of picking a basketball player in the sense that basketball allows more dominance. But uh, I was curious about how the invention of the three-point line changed the context of basketball and whether that makes players from the modern era more or less dominant in comparison to other basketball players from a previous era like Bill Russell or Wilt Chamberlain who maybe didn't play with a three-point line. Sorry, just uh, just quickly, what, what, what was the three-point change? Uh, basically, it's like the outer part of the crest, of the crease, like in on a, like a, on like a one side of the court. And if a team shoots from like outside that line, then the shot is worth three points as opposed to like the normal two. And this was not introduced until 
what was the year 1979 i just looked it up yeah 79 um so before that regardless of where you shot the ball it was just worth two points so adding that kind of inflated a lot of player stats because obviously three points is worth more than two so yeah, so the argument being is because more points are now available then it takes away from like it gives an advantage to modern basketball players as opposed to older basketball players like Bill Russell and such. 1979, okay. Oh, coincidentally, Magic Johnson and Larry Bird's rookie season. Funny. Um, I feel like that could definitely be made an, uh, be an impact, but I don't know if that t- necessarily takes away from the modern players as opposed to takes away from the early players. Uh, if anything, I would make the argument that you could then argue for a lot of early players like Bill Russell, for example, that they were like even more dominant than like initially thought. Um, like, yeah, I'm not sure. Like, what else? I, like, I do, I because th- like I don't think like players like I don't think LeBron James is super known for like being an excellent three point shooter anyway. Uh, so like, I'm not sure how much that has to at least my opinion of him being the most dominant. Uh, maybe just because it does encourage people to shoot from further away now that it does reward more points. But, like, still, I think Zach's point is decently fair. Uh, that being said, though, like, I don't think LeBron James is a notorious three-point shooter. And then I'm not sure how well, how how good of his three-point percentage is 0.344. To me, that doesn't look like a strong number anyway. So I would, like, he's much more known for, because his position, I believe, is small forward. Small forward, my bad. Uh, yeah oh he just plays everything so that just like power forward point guard small forward uh so i think that actually even adds to the point um but yeah i don't necessarily think of three-point shooter when i hear lebron james so i think he does way more than that yeah for his career he's a slightly below average three-point shooter but Mm -hmm. i just looked up recent years three-point shooting league average is around like 0.36 Oh, okay. So he's near the average. Yeah, just slightly below. I mean, I do apologize for anybody who's listening that does like actually like follow basketball and like the stats. I'm sure you could pull up a bunch of stats backing up uh, LeBron James in like a bigger way. It's just like I, even in like the sports, I'm more like, like in like in more um, like knowledgeable about. I don't really pay attention to stats as much as I do as to how a player performs. Like the impact he has, like on the court or on the field or whatever the uh, playing field is. Neville was just apologizing to some of the people who were listening because he might not know all the stats, and that's a very respectable thing to do. I just like to speak um, and say I'm not apologizing at all for the extensive discussion <laughs> of the squash scoring that played earlier this episode. You will not be receiving an apology if you listen through that. Congratulations, but I, I, I will not say that I'm sorry about that. Oh, I wouldn't apologize for the discussion. I'm just apologizing for maybe not representing what oh, yeah, no, no, I'm arguing as strong yeah. as some people might know about. Oh, absolutely. I'm just, I have no regrets that I discussed squash scoring systems for that long. I think, I think that's been quite quite a lot of discussion. Um, It doesn't look like we've reached any sort of agreement. I think, I think everyone stands by their pick as being the most, the most dominant player. Um, uh, Just, I, I, I know Jory, I think probably still stands by his pick. Is that right? I would not waver one bit. I think Barry Bonds, the way he played the game with 
vigor and attitude and grit shows you how dominant an athlete he was. I stand by my pick um, for all matters sports related. I would like to point out the guy that I pointed out um, does have some history of being in cahoots with Vladimir Putin. So <laughs> Vlad, oh. uh, so jo- Joel, you might be you might be on the list next. I don't support his political sort of views, but I do support him as an athlete. He was a dominant force. Alexander Carolyn, most dominant of all time. Keep your politics out of my. No, yeah, no com- no comment in his political leanings. I'll stand by my pick. I should. Give a disclaimer, I actually do not like LeBron James at all. Um, but like, yeah, similar to Joel, like I was, I, I, I would say I respect him as an athlete. I mean, my main issue and why I'm going to stick with James here, and I know I did shift teams like halfway through the setting. Now I'll go with James over Jordan. Um, I don't, I haven't heard of any of the players mentioned here today, except Lewis Hamilton. That's That was actually an interesting pick. I do like that one. Um, and like, I know that it's not all about fame. Like, obviously, like some of the things that these guys brought up, uh, how, like how they actually literally dominated their sports is a fair point. But like, when I think of best athlete of all time, I think the name has, a, has to do with it. And if a sport is really popular, then I would say it's a pretty good contention for it. I definitely think the other people made really good arguments for their people, but I still think Lewis Hamilton, uh, the level he's playing with people he's playing against his domination is one that still needs to be seen and i wouldn't say anything final but i still think lewis hamilton definitely has the potential to be the most dominant person dominant athlete ever already claiming the most dominant player in f1 i'd be interested to have uh, a part two where we might talk about the uh, most dominant single performance or the most dominant short span of a year but all time no question the master well that was it for the most dominant players of any sport and no agreement but we have some very good contenders so let us know in the comments what you think which one uh, which one of these do you think was the most dominant or if you have your own pick 